This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 321st episode, we have a bunch of news, including two new Ornithischians. Ooh. Yes. Very exciting. We don't talk a lot about Ornithischians. Except in this episode. Yeah. Theropods and Sauruschians in general, including the sauropods, mm-hmm. seem to get all the attention. Mm. And we also have an interview with Tara Cooper and Terry O'Neill, who created the documentary Follow the Bones, which is about the history of Pachyrhinosaurus and the namesake Al Lacusta. Mm-hmm. And we have a dinosaur of the day, Pantadraco, or Draco. I can't really roll my R's. Draca. I can't roll my R's either. Yeah, it should end in uh, huh? <laughs> that is, if you can pronounce it the Welsh way. Depends how much you want to anglicize it, I guess. Mm. But it's spelled like Panty Draco with a Y in the middle. Mm. So that's how I would have guessed if Sabrina hadn't looked up the Welsh pronunciation. Well, we got help from a listener from our Discord. Nice. Thank you. And speaking of thanking listeners, we have a few patrons to thank this week. Two new patrons getting shout outs. There's Elizabeth. Thank you very much for joining. And also Randy in Squim. And I've already had a nice little conversation with Randy. So thank you both very much for joining. And rounding out our shout outs are Stego Sophie, Sorian Brandy, Diplato Kate, Trent Carbajal, Kessler, Albertosaurus, Graham, and Neil Ovenator. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody, for being part of our community, which is growing. And there's a lot of really great conversations happening over on Discord. And that's just one of the perks. Yeah, there's some cool art. There was a recent discussion about how elegant dinosaur feet and backs are compared to human (laughs) feet and backs, which I thought was pretty enjoyable. Yeah. So if you want to join our growing community, then check out our page, patreon.com slash I know dino. So jumping into the news, I'm going to get into our two new ornithischians. The first one was written by A.V. Lopatina and A.O. Averyanov. And it was published in Paleontological Journal. Its name is Rabinian Ohadros, and it's spelled kind of like Riabinin Ohadros, if you see it written, in case you want to recognize it. But I looked up the Russian pronunciation, and I'm pretty sure it's more like Rabinian Ohadros. And the full name is Rabinian Ohadros Webere. It's named after Anatoly Rabinian. And he's a Russian paleontologist. He actually named the first dinosaur genus in China. Mm. Rabinian re-described a trachodon species 
and named the genus, rather than being a species of Trachodon, as the new genus Manchurosaurus. Mm. And from the name, you might be able to guess that it's from Manchuria, which is in northeast China and therefore close to the border with Russia. Kind of explains why he was working in the area. Unfortunately, Rabinian died during the Nazi siege of Leningrad, aka St. Petersburg, and over a million Russian civilians were killed from the attacks and starvation of Leningrad. It's considered the most lethal siege in world history. I, again, while reading about this, felt like, man, American history classes leave something to be desired because I'd never heard of this before, uh, which I'm kind of ashamed of. Well, I'd heard of it, so I guess it depends on the class. I guess you had a better history class than me because this is an incredibly important event. I don't know how he ended up staying there during the siege because a lot of people were evacuated from the city. I really tried to dig in and see if I could find anything about why he stayed in Leningrad. He was in his late 60s when he died, so that might have something to do with it because I know one of the focuses was on evacuating children mm. from the city. Could be he had family who was staying there. Yeah, or some people just don't like evacuating because they want to stay where they've lived a lot of their life. Or possibly he wanted to keep working because he was working in Leningrad. This is where his fossils were. It's where they still are to this day. So you can't evacuate with all your fossils. And if he was really dedicated to his work, he might have wanted to stay for that reason. Mm. Because he was still working right up until the end. Several of Rabinian's papers were actually published posthumously, which technically means he officially named several animals posthumously. So he had tons of work going on in those last years. He was prolific. Yeah, and there are quite a few dinosaurs that he named. I think this is the first dinosaur that's named after him. I think it is a good choice to honor him with the name of this new dinosaur because obviously very important to mm -hmm. dinosaur paleontology. So Rabinianohadros was originally named Orthomerus weberi. Orthomerus weberi was one of the dinosaurs and animals named by Rabinian posthumously. He named it officially in 1945. Hmm. The species name was corrected from Weberi to Weberay since it's named after a woman, G.F. Weber. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what their first name is. Everywhere just calls her G.F. Weber. Mm. <laughs> but she originally found the fossil in 1934, quote, on the summit of Beshkosh Mountain. So the dinosaur was on top of a mountain. It was. It's a mountain in Crimea, and it's the first dinosaur bone that was ever found in Crimea. Cool. Yeah, pretty cool dinosaur. So in 1995 is when it became Orthomerus weberi instead of weberi, which means it was sort of had the wrong gender assigned to it by the Latinization for 50 years before it got corrected. And now it's Rabinianohadros weberi. How did the name change? So somebody wrote another paper and sort of among the ICZN guidelines, are if somebody names a dinosaur with the wrong Latinized gender ending to it, you can correct it and change it over to the, what should be the official name. So the official name actually changed from Weberi to Weberay in 1995. Oh, yes. I'm asking about Orthomeris to Rabinianohadros. How did that change happen if it was already published as Orthomeris? So this is one of those cases just like Brontosaurus, mm. where they decided that it doesn't belong in that genus and it should be in its own genus. Oh, okay. So there are multiple species of Orthomerus. 
Yeah, the type species is Doloi from 1883. So Rabinian assigned this new animal into that genus with a, you know, just an additional species within the genus. And now this new paper came out in 2020, split it out into its own genus. Okay, got it. Interestingly, in 2015, it was published as Rabinianohadros weberi, not weberi. So they were using the outdated species name, but apparently it didn't identify the unique details or diagnostic characters properly. This is the one that was written in Russian. It's kind of two papers that I'm talking about. That one did talk about some unique features of it, but it must have just not been proper enough, I guess. So the ICZN didn't recognize Rabinianohadros from that paper. Hmm. They didn't recognize it until this 2020 paper. But the 2015 paper includes a lot more detail about the bones. It has pictures of it. It has a nice little diagram of the dinosaurs and which bones were in it. Whereas the 2020 paper, although in English, is very brief. It's only like a page and a half. Mm -hmm. And it's basically like, this is what it's named. Maybe it's whatever needed to happen to make it officially named. They put that in the paper. Yeah, I think so. Over the years, a lot of people have considered Rabinianohadros to be just an unidentified hadrosaurid. Others have published referencing Rabinianohadros, and then this 2020 paper is meant to sort of clarify that mix-up. I think it's useful to have a name for it because it is in the literature quite a bit, so at mm-hmm. least we'll all know what everybody's talking about. Right, and if there's a really good description of it, it doesn't make sense to keep it as this unidentified hadrosaurid. Yeah, exactly. The holotype is not super great, It includes a good portion of the left leg and foot is basically what it is. It's got a partial femur, like a a very partial femur, a more complete tibia, an astragalus, which is the ankle bone, some of the toe bones, and then some unidentified fragments. Mm. So it's not great, but it's not the worst either. Mm -hmm. It's probably enough to distinguish it from other hadrosaurs because fortunately those are among the bones that you can use to identify a hadrosaur but it's not great. (laughs) It's still not good enough to really nail down the phylogeny that well. But enough to know it deserves its own genus. I guess. At least that's what several of the recent authors think. Mm -hmm. But there were some that want to call it just an unknown hadrosaurid, so we'll Mm -hmm. see. Based on the details of the bones, it's probably not a hadrosaurid or even a hadrosauroid, they put it in the larger group, Ankyloplexia. I would probably just call it an ornithopod. In the title of the paper, they refer to it as an iguanodontian. But that whole area of the dinosaur family tree is a little bit dicey. So ornithopod, I think, is a good way to go. I should probably mention, too, that 2015 paper was published by R. Ulansky. The one with all the details. Yes. And it was the first paper that called the dinosaur Rabinianohadros, but then used the wrong not properly corrected Latinized species name. Mm. That paper also describes Rabinianohadros as relatively slender or a lightweight animal. And they assume that the forelimbs may have been used for swimming and grabbing food, which I thought was kind of weird, but that was in the paper. (laughs) The femur is about 80 centimeters long or 31 inches. If it wasn't as fragmentary as it is. So that's sort of a rough estimate where if you added the missing pieces back, that would give a hip height of about two and a half meters or eight feet. 
and based on similar dinosaurs, it would have been around 7 meters or 23 feet long, making it medium-sized. I think it was kind of small, considering it's a late Cretaceous ornithopod. It was from the late Maastrichtian, which was right at the end when there were the biggest ornithopods. Mm -hmm. But it was in Crimea, so I don't know if there were other giant animals around or if this was on the larger scale for that area. And like I said before, the fossils are kept at the Central Geological Museum in St. Petersburg. I don't think they're on display, but that's where they are. Cool. The more we learn about and talk about dinosaurs and the history of paleontology, the more I see how dinosaurs are entwined with it. pretty much everything. Yes. <laughs> Including just like lots of anthropology and like political stuff and social stuff. Mm -hmm. Other sciences. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, they pop up in literature and media and art, all kinds of things. Yeah. Our other new Ornithischian is Sinankylosaurus. This is one of the few ankylosaur finds from 2020. It was published by Kabai Wang and others in the Geological Bulletin of China. And this one was in Chinese. It was a very translation filled research <laughs> that I did for this episode. Mm -hmm. I'm better at translating Chinese than I am at Russian, so at least I had that going for me. <laughs> That's good. Still not very good, but a little bit better. The name Sine Ankylosaurus is spelled S-I-N, just like Sino, because Sino is the Latin for Chinese. So there's all sorts of things that are like Sino-Japanese and all sorts of Sino-American. It seems like they're always combined with other countries hmm. when I see the word Sino. But the full name is Sine Ankylosaurus Juchungensis. So technically, Sine Ankylosaurus is Chinese fused lizard, but really it means Chinese Ankylosaurus. Hmm. It was discovered in 2010, and it was found near Juchung, Shandong, China. I'm not surprised based on the name that it was found in China and specifically Juchung. Yeah, exactly. It's a species so name. The name is like Chinese Ankylosaurus in Juchung, and that's where it was found. Mm -hmm. That's basically all you get out of the name. And that it's an Ankylosaur, I guess. Even though in English they wrote out the name as Sine Ankylosaurus Juchungensis, they also, since it was written in Chinese, they have a Chinese name basically that they didn't write out, but it would be pronounced Zhongguo Jialong, which literally means China. Right, Zhongguo means China. And then Jialong means Ankylosaurus. So it's like China Ankylosaurus if you wanted to Latinize it that way, or Chinese Ankylosaurus. There you go, Garrett. Now you know how to say what your favorite dinosaur is in Chinese. I do, yes. I know how to say your favorite dinosaur group too, but that's going to be my fun fact. Because hmm. <laughs> this sent me down a rabbit hole of doing all this translating of different dinosaurs. was kind of fun. Chung, like I said, is in Shandong province in eastern China. It's located basically halfway in between Shanghai and Beijing. The area is full of dinosaur fossils, including Sinoceratops juchungensis. There's another Sino. <laughs> and also another juchungensis. It's mm. the exact same species name. That's the one that's famous from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, the one that licks Owen Grady's face. Oh, yeah, it's a gross scene. Yeah. It also battles the Carnotaurus in a less gross scene, I <laughs> guess. It was a little bit controversial because they had holes in the frill in the movie, whereas we think it was probably covered in skin in real life. There's also Ischioceratops juchungensis, and then there's the genus juchung titan, 
Mm. So Ju Chung is really getting a strong showing in the dinosaur literature at mm -hmm. this point. Lots of dinosaurs found there. Yes. I think Ischioceratops juchungensis is kind of funny because it's named after the ischium, which as a quick reminder on dinosaurs is the bone in the hips that points backwards in both Saurischia and Ornithischia. It's the pubis that switches back and forth depending on which group they're in. And in case you're wondering, in our body, the ischia are basically at the bottom of our hips because our hips are weird. They're like all fused together more so than sauropods, so it's kind of hard to identify which bones are where. Sine ankylosaurus is known from a near-complete right ilium, which is another bone of the hips. In humans and dinosaurs, the ilia are at the top of the hips. So in us, it's like the big part that sticks out. It's probably what you're talking about if you talk about somebody's hips. It's sort of what gives the profile of our hips if you're looking at somebody. Mm. In both humans and dinosaurs, the ilia are the hip bones that surround the sacrum or the fused vertebrae that go between the hips. Although in ours, it's basically the end of our spine, whereas in dinosaurs, it continues into the tail, obviously. They describe the ilium as well-preserved and nearly complete, but it's just that one partial bone in sine ankylosaurus. There's nothing else. Just one mostly complete hip bone. Oh, but there you go, Garrett. Rabinian Ohadros has it beat. Are you just trying to poke at me because I like ankylosaurus? Is that what this is? <laughs> no, it's because you're talking about the holotype of Rabinian Ohadros only had, you know, the left leg and tibia and some fragments. Yes. So this one is worse. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I think this one's even less likely to hold up to scrutiny than mm -hmm. Rabinian Ohadros. Unless they find more fossils later and can yes. attribute it. That would definitely help because in addition to this one only having one bone, it's also bent. It got distorted during fossilization. Mm. So it makes it even harder to identify unique features of it since some of the features are distorted. And they're pretty sure that it was bent during fossilization and it's not like a natural bend because they also found a bent hadrosaur bone with it. Mm. It's a about 65 centimeters or two foot, two inches long, the entire thing, the entire find. That's all there is. And obviously by the name, they classified sine ankylosaurus within ankylosauria. They couldn't be any more specific than that. Obviously, there was no club or head or even a single osteoderm found with the dinosaur. So I don't know. I don't think it's going to hold up very long. But they do know a pretty good guesstimate on the age. They give it a range of 73.5 to 77.3 million years ago, which makes Ankylosaurus about 5 to 10 million years younger than Sine Ankylosaurus. The holotype of Ankylosaurus doesn't have an ilium, so I couldn't compare those directly. I don't know of one that's been found since the holotype either. Like, I don't think there are any referred Ankylosaurus ilia. And Montonia and Zool also don't have Ilia. I think Zool might have one, but it just hasn't been published yet. I'm not sure. Weirdly, there are about a half dozen other Ankylosaur Ilia from China, though. Mm. And they include those in the paper. Something about Ilias. Yes, it's weird because like postcranial Ankylosaur stuff is often hard to find. I'm not sure why there are so many of these Ankylosaur hips in China, but it is fortunate for the study. For my purposes, I was just trying to get an estimate at how big Sinankylosaurus is. 
and the ilium is close-ish in length to Pinacosaurus. And Pinacosaurus is considered to be about 5 meters or 16 feet long and roughly 2 tons. So assuming that this Sinankylosaurus bone and that Pinacosaurus bone are from, you know, both from adults or something, you could guess they were around the same size. And that would mean that Ankylosaurus was much bigger because 16 feet long and 2 tons is not that big for an Ankylosaur. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying, this is really not a great find. I think there's a very good chance it becomes dubious soon. For a comparison, Crichtonosaurus is now considered dubious. It was also named from China. That holotype included the lower jaw and teeth, and they referred other bones, including vertebrae, a shoulder blade, coracoid, humerus, femur, foot bones, and osteoderms. Way more than just a single ilium. Mm, good point. It's possible that the ilium is really special and unique, but Victoria Arbor is really the world-leading expert on ankylosaurs at this point, and she always likes to use skulls to tell ankylosaurs apart. A lot of times that's the only really diagnostic part of the animal, so just having an ilium when we don't know of the ilium and a bunch of other ankylosaurs, it, yeah, I don't. I don't really see this one sticking around very long, which is kind of a bummer because Sinan Kylosaurus is a pretty good name. Mm -hmm. You never know. They might find more fossils. They might. Hopefully they do. Maybe a skull. That would be very good. Or a tail, so we can find out if it had a tail club or not. Mm -hmm. And if you're curious, it's stored at the Juchung Dinosaur Culture Research Center. So in other news, in Mukawa, Hokkaido, Japan... Hokkaido University and the town of Mukawa have found fossils of a new but not yet named dinosaur species that was originally found in 1990 by a fossil collector and local resident, Yoshiyuko Horita, and he found it along a river and then donated those fossils to the Hobetsu Museum. And last year, the fossils were cleaned, and now they're thinking, oh, this is a new dinosaur. <laughs> Good. So Yoshitsugu Kobayashi from Hokkaido University examined the fossils and said it's probably from a theropod that lived in the Cretaceous earlier than this other full-length dinosaur that was found in 2013, which was informally known as Mukararyu, but then named Kamuisaurus in 2019. And Kobayashi said, quote, We may be able to unravel the mechanism of the macroevolution from dinosaurs to birds. So no skull's been found yet, but so far there's parts of the rib, thigh, and pelvis. Interesting. I guess it's a theropod, so it could be related to the dinosaur bird transition. Mm -hmm. We'll find out more when it's, they're done preparing. And publishing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in Fujian, China, paleontologists have found over 240 fossilized dinosaur footprints, and that's the first one found in that province. The tracks are 80 million years old. They're in Shanghai County, and the tracks are from at least eight types of dinosaurs. There's sauropods, theropods, ornithopods. So Xinglita said the size of the dinosaurs ranged from three feet or one meters to 33 feet or 10 meters long. And it looks like the dinosaurs ate and drank along a lake that's based on analysis of the site. So there's long-term plans to find more fossils and preserve them. Only 33 feet long for the sauropods there. That's not so big. Yeah. I'm guessing the three-foot ones are probably theropods, and the ornithopods are probably in between. Could be some babies, too. That's true. With 240 fossil footprints, it's mm -hmm. a pretty good sample there. I hope they find other stuff, too, like coprolites. Yeah. 
Gut contents. Yeah, gut contents. If they know that they ate and drank along this lake, yeah, who knows what else they could find. Yeah, it is kind of a bummer that a lot of times the kind of sediment that preserves footprints doesn't preserve bones all that often. One can hope, Garrett. One yeah. can hope. One can. <laughs> Go ahead, one. <laughs> so really quick, Scientific American published about how dinosaur discoveries are booming, which... We know. <laughs> but now we've got numbers. So since 1824, 10,851 dinosaur fossils, about 1,000 species, have been documented. Two-thirds of those were in North America and Europe. I'm guessing by dinosaur fossils, they mean dinosaur specimens, like skeletons, in other words, because 10,000 dinosaur fossils can practically be in a single bone bed. Oh, that's a good point. Yes, it didn't specify, but you're probably right. So most of these fossils have been found in paleontologists' home countries. They said, quote, the ease of local fieldwork has led to a concentration of discoveries in well-traveled areas. Again, something we've been seeing a lot, but it's nice to have this documented with some numbers. Mm -hmm. So building local expertise is important for finding more fossils, which we know we've talked a lot about this on our show. Yes. Yeah, we're always harping about how we need more museums, especially in areas where there are dinosaur discoveries to be made, and hopefully more researchers in those areas too. Mm -hmm. But the good news is there's been more fossil discoveries lately in East Asia and Southern South America, which is another thing we probably knew if we went through our show archives. <laughs> and that's because there's more museums and stuff popping up in those spots? More museums, more paleontologists from these areas too. Nice. In Niger, the National Museum of Niger is planning on expanding and refurbishing next year. And the current museum has dinosaurs. They also have a zoo with 111 animals, and they have all kinds of exhibits. They've got stuff on nuclear energy, craft work, history, and more. Wow, that is like the all-in-one museum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> museum slash zoo slash science. Yeah, based on the article... About the museum, it sounds like one of their goals is education in many different forms. Yeah, that's pretty epic. I've never heard of a single museum covering those many different topics before. Mm -hmm. They also purposely make it really affordable so anybody can go. Cool. In the UK, the designs for the Mary Anning statue in Lyme Regis have been released, and they show Mary walking with her dog, Trey, and holding a pickaxe and a fossil. I think it's an ammonite. And the sketch is by sculptor Denise Dutton. So far, their campaign's raised about two-thirds of what they need to move forward with the statue. Nice. Mm -hmm. Getting close. Yeah, I think I've heard, didn't you talk about like a kid's book or something that talked about her and her dog? Mm -hmm. There's something about how she would take her dog with her when she was fossil hunting. Yeah, there's a few good books about her. And then last, back over in North America... American football player, the defensive end for the Cleveland Browns, Miles Garrett, is a really big fan of dinosaurs. I think we've talked about that before. Yeah. And his girlfriend got him a Spinosaurus cake for his birthday a few <laughs> weeks ago. Nice. So she contacted Deb Rogers from Sensational Cakes, who did a bunch of research to make the cake as accurate as possible. For example, making sure the structure on the tail was up to date in terms of, you know, the, the Spinosaurus tail paper that came out in 2020. Oh, wow. That's yeah. really up to date. Yeah. And then they created the structure out of PVC, wire, and plywood. Apparently that part took about 10 hours, and then she took another 32 hours to finish the cake. Is this a really big cake? It's, yes. Well, it was hard to figure out the scale, but it is 
bigger than, I think, a normal cake. Bigger than be. a sheet cake? Yeah. It's made of Madagascar vanilla with chocolate buttercream filling, and it, the Spinosaurus is also dressed in a football helmet and jersey. And they said that the Spinosaurus also plays defensive end. <laughs> of course. <laughs> what else would a Spinosaurus play? Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if it's made out of real nice tasting cake, it probably wasn't that big because the huge cakes are always made out of rice crispy and just like a whole bunch of layers of... It's not like the Ankylosaurus cake yeah. that went to the AMNH. The Zool cake? Yeah. And I think there's... I couldn't find any or I didn't see any, but I think there's pictures of him eating it or slicing into it. I don't know. But it was... Yeah, it's meant to be eaten. Well, most of it anyway. Not the parts made out of wire and plywood. Yeah, don't eat that. Yeah. Or PVC. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Tara and Terry. But before we get into it, I want to give a real quick background on a couple of details because we sort of just dive into it. <laughs> the main characters of the documentary are Phil Curry, Ava Kopelhus, both of whom we have talked to before and you're probably familiar with their names, husband-wife team who do all sorts of dinosaur digs around Canada, especially Alberta. There's also Al Lacusta, who found Pachyrhinosaurus along a stream in a, a riverbed in northern Alberta. And Darren Tankey, who is a preparator at the Royal Tyrrell Museum and obviously ended up working on Pachyrhinosaurus because the documentary focuses on Pachyrhinosaurus. 
the Ceratopsian from Alberta. It's quite a bit different than other Ceratopsians that usually have a nasal horn. This is a big, flat, rough patch on its nose, but like presumably bone, maybe covered in keratin. And we'll get a little bit more into the detail about what different modern depictions of it are like. So without further ado, we're going to go into our interview. We are joined this week by Tara Cooper, who's an artist and professor of fine arts at the University of Waterloo, and Terry O'Neill, who worked in the documentary unit of CBC for 15 years and nowadays makes independent documentaries. And of course, they collaborated on the brand new documentary, Follow the Bones. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. We're delighted to be here. Same. Delighted. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So before we get into what Follow the Bones is, can you tell us a little bit about what it almost was? Well, it almost didn't get finished. (laughs) It it almost was in the trash can. Gosh, it takes a long time to make something. Yeah, we had done some films before, but more kind of short experimental films. So this is really our first feature length. Yeah, and the feature part really, really took some extra time. So I think it was about five years, all in all. It was. It started, yeah. Basically, uh, we have a friend named Martin Barron. He designed the museum that is featured in the uh, documentary, uh, the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum in Grand Prairie. And we were at a barbecue at his place, and he makes, like, just fantastic barbecue. And he was showing us... He's also super talented architect. Uh, yeah, he's... he's, <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 he's one of those people that are kind of annoying because you're like, oh, yeah, he's good cook too. Oh, yeah, and, he's nice. Oh, and he's really nice. Oh, and yeah. oh, he's so talented. Oh, oh and he's yeah. very thoughtful. Oh, yeah. And, you know... He's got a full head of hair. And super smart. <laughs> and, yeah, but, you know, uh, it's good to hang out with those people, though. It's true. <laughs> Plus, he feeds you. Exactly. True. So we were at a barbecue with them. And Martin showed us photos of this building in progress. And we were like, wow, that's really cool looking. And he's like, ah, you think it looks cool? You should hear the story behind it. And then he started telling us the story about Al. And at this point, my career at the CBC was kind of wrapping up. I was in Toronto. Tara was at the University of Waterloo. So Tara was commuting. It wasn't a lot of fun. And so I needed, I needed something to do, frankly. So I thought, well, why don't I make a documentary about the design of the museum? And we we went there several times, put in the put in the time, put in the effort. I uh, interviewed the exhibit designers. We went to Martin's office in downtown Toronto, beautiful space, and we went to visit Al. And then we went to the bone bed. And then little by little, there's this nagging sort of thing, sort of pulling on your ear um, <laughs> at night, where. You have a sort of a sense in, in, uh, here's a different, I'm just going to mix a lot of analogies. You have this sort of pit in your gut that says you might not be following the right story. So then basically it's just sort of slowly and slowly became more about Al. And then we met Al several times and he said, you know, you should really go see this person and that person, this person. So we, we started essentially following the bones and we made a full cut of the uh, documentary that was about Martin, about some of the directors of the museum. It was the whole shebang about oh, wow. the, the building itself. This is why it took so long. Well, because <laughs> you made that's, two. That's, that's my <laughs> Pretty excuse. Pretty much, yeah. I'm sticking with that excuse. I, I think, too, that when we start, you know, like our background, like Terry actually is trained as an architect. I'm an artist. So, 
Our background is more from the fine arts. So we kind of came to it with just an appreciation for the building and the design conceptually first. And then also I have a lot of background in museums, just love museums. So we kind of came at it from that experience and expertise. And to be honest, like, I'm going to be really embarrassed for this podcast, but I, I didn't even really know we had dinosaurs in Canada. Because <laughs> it's kind of a big deal, as I found out. Um, yeah, so we didn't come at it from the dinosaur. But then as we found out more and more of the stories and then we got to do the field work and then, yeah, then, you know, even I'm a convert. And I am totally into dinosaurs and it's hard to compete with that story. So yeah, we, as we kept doing edits and cuts and we got feedback, we realized that, you know, of course the dinosaurs were always there, but yeah, they're really the main character. And so, yeah, we kind of shifted the whole doc at that point, which is partly why it took a little bit longer. Yeah. Yeah. I think you should be forgiven for not knowing there are dinosaurs in Canada because you're coming from near Toronto and there aren't really dinosaurs there. They're no. over in Alberta mostly. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Yeah, I appreciate that because I'd actually never been to Alberta either. So yeah. So it was a big surprise to me, like, and especially going to the Badlands. I was just like, oh my God, this is, it's like <laughs> being on the moon or something. Like just yeah, that landscape is so unique and just, yeah, there's something, um, I mean, obviously it's of our world, but it just feels almost otherworldly. And maybe that's like how, because time kind of collapses there mm-hmm. in that you feel like, yeah, you really feel the sense that this happened long ago, but you're still there. And it's, yeah, there is a very, I don't know if it's like string theory or something, but there's something weird going on when you're out there. <laughs> yeah. 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 How much time did you spend in the field? I met them. Boy, when did I meet them? It was in Grand Prairie, like at the museum. They happened to be there and they said, oh, by the way, we're going to a a dig tomorrow. Can you, do you want to join? And we were actually going to uh, a friend's wedding in upstate New York. We were flying back. And I said, Tara, I got to go. You got to take one for the team and go to the wedding. <laughs> um, so like the first one, you know, and I think they were trying to test me, like they were giving me crazy, not the GPS coordinates, but you know, the scientific ones. Mm. So they gave me these like a big long string and said, meet us there. So, you know, like I'm driving, it's, it's ranch land mostly. So, you know, how do you get through a herd of cows? <laughs> I guess the answer is you go slow and then. So yeah, it started, I mean, basically we were in Grand Prairie because again, we were focused on the museum at first. So we were you know, filming the museum. And then we went out to the bone bed there. And then that's where we met Phil. And then, yeah, I mean, they were super generous right from the get-go. But for sure, I mean, going out into the field like Dinosaur Provincial Park, like obviously not everyone gets to do that. So building that kind of relationship and trust took a while. But right away, they were, yeah, just really generous in terms of the story and being on camera and us filming in that. But we were filming at Grand Prairie. And so we got some footage there. And then, yeah, they were like, oh, we're on our way to Janusa Provincial Park. And, you know, that's that's a pretty, that's kind of it in a way or part of it in terms of dinosaurs. And then when Terry, when they invited us, yeah, Terry's like, I got to go, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think all in all, maybe we were 
Fine. Terry was in, in the field more, but maybe like two weeks. So we yeah. would just kind of go in for like a couple of days and then film and then, yeah, and then come back. And then again, it was over, like we probably went back to Alberta over three years, which in some ways, you know, seems kind of long. But I remember being like at one point when we were filming, I was like, you know, they're not going to have that much more footage. Like, we're not going to get that. Like, it's so painstaking that I was like, you know, we leave today or tomorrow. Like, let's face it, it's not going to be that different in terms of the film because it takes so long to uncover the bones. So, yeah, yeah but we were lucky that we got a few shots that were just golden, kind mm-hmm. of the money shot, like mm-hmm. the one of them well, I shouldn't give it away, but there's one where they're flipping the jacket, which is just like, yeah, we were like, oh yeah, that's the money <laughs> shot. So that's gotta be in there. So did and you was... know that was coming? Did they say like, oh, we're getting ready to get this fossil out, you should come up, or was it just totally luck? Oh no, I had I had booked that uh that that was a, another trip that I went on my own. And I think Tara was genuinely concerned that I wouldn't make it out of out alive, but you know, I, I'm not savvy with the camping. So, you know, mm. uh, I met Eva at the head of the ranch and then it's about a 5k drive in. And she said, don't book a flight right away when you're leaving. Cause if it rains, you're not coming out of the valley. Cause the, cause of the bentonite, it's super, mm. it's bananas how slippery it is. And uh, yeah, the first, you know, it was, it was wild. You know, I was like, so where's the loo? And they said, um, all right, here's a here's a little shovel. Good luck. <laughs> and uh, a flag. They had a flag. So people, you know, so you knew like over the hill and around the corner. The area. <laughs> and you see the flag, like yeah. don't go that way. There's but. all kinds of, uh, but yeah. And, and they're so generous with, you know, like I had to bring all my, my own food and everything, but they did pick me up and, and drive me in. And which was, that takes a couple of hours out mm-hmm. of their their dig yeah and that's precious time yeah so. especially in field because for them like you know the field season is short right yeah. you can't mm-hmm. go all year so they're kind of preparing all year thinking about that season and the timing of it and and they integrate like having the students out there and courses and grad students and so there's just a ton of coordination that happens behind the scenes so to go and have to get somebody for a couple hours that's kind of big for them but then, yeah, I was worried about Terry. Also, it's very physical. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you can tell. I think I mentioned this in the film, but oh, my God, they are so fit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm so, je- in some ways, I'm a little bit jealous. But yeah, so that first time, like, I remember Terry talking about, like, it, it you know, you're hiking, you're walking, and then you're out, and it's, you know, you're exposed, and it's hot, and there's bugs. And yeah, so they are, which you wouldn't think of, but paleontologists, fan, they're a fit bunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the first time that I I went out there, I did not know that they were flipping the, I'm going to, I don't even know how to say the word, Parsifalophus. Am I saying that correctly? Oh, the Parasaurolophus or? That's bingo. Yeah, bravo. So when they're, I I didn't know they were flipping that, but like Mm -hmm. the first time I went there, it's bananas. Like there's the public part of the park and then there's the private ranches that you have to get permission to and that's where the quarries are. They're busy, so I'm just tooting around on my on my own. They're like, "Don't fall in a sinkhole, um, <laughs> don't get bit by a scorpion. Watch out for the rattlesnakes, and you know, don't." Oh yeah, there's there's also uh, quicksand. Yeah, we found there. out about oh, quicksand after we'd been there for a bit, and then the the one the one paleontologist from Saskatchewan was like, 
I mean, she had been out in the field and somebody, there was quicksand. They went in and she's like, yeah, it's a good thing we were there. They ended up at their waist and then she pulled them out. <laughs> oh, man. Just like, oh, I can see God. why you were worried. <laughs> I was, yeah, we were a little bit worried. I, I was kind of like, whoa, this is, this is, this is pushing it for me. Yeah, out of, out of my comfort zone for sure. Yeah. And it was cool because like the first time I went there, you know, you're like, oh, it's Dinosaur Provincial Park. But that's kind of an abstract thing. But when you're walking around on the ground, you're literally crunching bits of bone. Well, like, you didn't crunch any, did you? Well, no, like, yeah, yeah you do. You shouldn't break them. I'm not. No, I didn't break them. <laughs> I didn't break them. There, There's just bits that wash out, you know, like the, it's it's a valley. So all this stuff is washing out, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you hit a, a, a flat spot, you're like, it's like crunch, crunch, crunch on bits of bone, tiny fragments, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just everywhere. And I was interviewing one of the grad students and he's like, he looks down and he's like, oh, hey, there's a T-Rex tooth. And he picked it up and he threw it to me. And I'm like, that's bananas. This stuff is just everywhere, you know? So Yeah, I mean, I was like, like I said, I'm no no expert now. And I remember being at the top of the one hill and I overlooked and I was like, even I can tell that's a dinosaur. <laughs> like, they're just, you know, it's, yeah, they really, it's amazing to see that kind of amount of material kind of in one I mean, it's not like the bone bed where it's so dense because we went to, in Dinosaur Provincial Park, we went to a couple different sites that they were working on. So, and then each site is different in terms of what they're finding mm. and unique to that site. And yeah, it, it, it for sure, it's mind blowing. Switching gears slightly a little bit. A lot of the story is about Alacusta and Pachyrhinosaurus, and I loved that you included some scientific debate about the Pachyrhinosaurus horn and like whether it's a horn or a boss and all of that kind of stuff. How how deep into the weeds did you end <laughs> up getting into these dinosaurs? Regarding the horn or no horn controversy, we went pretty deep. We went deep enough that uh, certain people didn't want to be on the record about uh, <laughs> talking whether it had a horn or not. But it's fascinating because like, I don't even know how it came up, but basically at the Royal Tyrell Museum, there's the Pachyorhinosaurus out front. There's these large fiberglass models. And the first time I went there, they had horns. And then a couple of years later, they didn't have horns. And I was like, <laughs> where'd their horns go? And so I asked uh, Darren Tankey, the senior technician at the Royal Tyrell, and he's like, oh, we replaced the heads because it was inaccurate. And I was like, that's bananas. Like that's, that's a real commitment. And then, so we asked Phil about them. Like, what do you think? Did they have horn? And it it meshed nicely with, he talked a lot about the dinosaur renaissance in the seventies, where it became more about like biology than kind of geology and about how the animals behave. So he, he, he went into this long sort of description of why there is why he strongly thinks there's there's a horn, and um, the 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 book that they published there's there's actually a citation where one of the researchers clearly says I do not agree with this this theory. Um, <laughs> it did not have a horn at all, and there's also the bone bed itself. You've been there. It's kind of a muddy pit, and it was pointed out to us like if it did have a horn, there should be gaps in there shouldn't be bones where the horn would have been. There mm-hmm. would just be empty mud. And there was no, there was lots of bones where the horn should be. That's so, but then I seem to recall something else about over time, all of that material is shifting. Yeah. So 
you know, some bones could potentially have, you know, trickled down to yeah, where the sure. horn had been. But what was interesting too for us is just in terms of Phil that, and that's a part of the kind of research innovation, I guess, is that you kind of have to take a leap, right? And mm-hmm. imagine, try to explain something and imagine it and trying to put the pieces together. And for him, that's where at least some of the excitement is. It's it's literally the debate and trying to piece these things together. And then it seemed like it wasn't so much that people necessarily didn't 100% disagree exactly. It was more that the proof hadn't been provided yet. So mm. they weren't willing to go on record to say, yes, this is what it would look like because, you know, there's not proof yet. And I think Phil summed it up when he said, you know, I forget the exact quote in the in the documentary, but he said, this is what science is all about. And, you know, and he's like, we're not going to agree on everything and we're not supposed to agree on everything. That's literally like the the profession. That's yeah. what science is. So I found that really interesting. And we, uh, when we were having the illustrations done, we included the horn because we're like, well, we're on team Phil. And I was really nervous about people seeing the film with the horn. I was like, oh dear, I hope I'm not going to get, you know, (laughs) I don't know, the business. Yeah, the mail uh, of there was no horn. How could you? Blasphemy. Yeah, so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. There was a little bit, especially in the, I think the trailer for Follow the Bones, where you talked about they were potentially going to throw away the Pachyrhinosaurus bones. Was that really going to happen? Yeah, that Darren. So so basically, we, we interviewed Al. You know, we're like, okay, check, done. All right, next. And then Al was like, no, 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 no. You need to talk to Darren Tankey. He's the key to this story. And basically, we're like, all right, well, um, we hadn't planned on it. And it's, you know, several hundred kilometers to the south. But we better go... <laughs> you know, track him down. And he was very generous with his time. So we we met with him twice at the Royal Tyrell. And I guess this sort of keen passion, like Phil had seen Al's collection and he made a little note, and this is years earlier, and, and the notes got archived in the Royal Tyrell. And maybe and, even a decade. It was like, it was a while. And, you know, of course he was focused on another study and was was focused in Dinosaur Provincial Park and was just kind of driving through and thought, oh, maybe I'll take a look at this thing that the teacher found and drew this really quick sketch. And then basically Phil's notes went into the archives. In the meantime, like Phil and, and Darren had had a career together and then Darren was like on a coffee break. And this shows how passionate he was. Most people have a coffee on their coffee break. <laughs> he went back into the library and found, he was like, oh, he, here's a here's one of Phil's notebooks. And he was flipping through and he's a ceratopsid expert. And he recognized right away and he was like, what is this? <laughs> and he tracked it down with Phil and Phil said, it's this, this teacher way up North. And he called him, I think it was on a Friday. And Al said, well, you know, why don't you come up and see my collection? And uh, he was like, "When do you want to come up?" And 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 Darren said, "Tomorrow." And he's like, "I'm I'm driving these hundreds of kilometers." So, in the meantime, Al Al got shut down by the laws in uh, Alberta that were changed, so you could not collect. Just 
kind of amateurs could not collect. You can get, now you can, if it's on the surface, yeah, sure, but you can't dig. Mm -hmm. And so Al had to give up his collection and it went to a local museum, but it wasn't, you know, it was just, it wasn't identified. It was just a bunch. It was like a, a bit of a curiosity, like kind of this interesting, you know, local man finds dinosaur bones. And the the museum, it was like a local thing and the uh, the director had died and it looked like they were going to throw him out. So when Darren heard that, he raced even more towards like the, the museum. And he found out that they weren't like, basically they had found some place to put them. And Al had tons of bones. They were in his basement. It, it looked hilarious. And if you see the old <laughs> photos, I'm sure his partner was like well his wife yeah he talked about how his wife filling up the basement with all these bones (laughs) (laughs) anyways what they found like i said they weren't identified when darren went to see the collection at the museum one of the museum people said oh nice vertebrae and darren was like First of all, that's the world's largest vertebrae. If if that was a vertebrae, it's not a vertebrae. <laughs> and he's like, that would be a sauropod and they're not in Alberta. So he knew right away that it was something important. And, you know, it was really Darren's sort of passion to sort of track this story down that, you know, Darren brought it back to Phil and Phil was the curator of the T-Rel at the time and said, I think we have something here that's important. And then after that, they said, all right, let's go check this out. And they went there and they just couldn't kind of, they went to the actual bone bed. It's just chock-a-block of, hmm. with with stuff there. So, well, not stuff, fossils. But they, they really were, like, they were just kind of sitting there and nobody was doing anything with them. And there was the potential that they were going to be, you know, they were going to be get they were getting rid of them maybe like it, what i don't think it was like they were taking out the keys to the garbage truck and hadn't got that far but yeah it definitely was not off the table yeah anyways they were super super friendly and they really do have this kind of can do spirit and i and i felt that that was a big part of why they were able to kind of make the museum happen because a lot of the people in the community kind of came together. Like there certainly was some kind of grant funding and that, but it was really the locals that came together and made it happen. So that was a surprise because I I do think that's something that's a little bit more distinct to Alberta. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Was there, what was the original name of that museum going to be? Do you remember? Oh, Oh, it was terrible. The River of Death. The, the river of death and discovery. Al had, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, honey, would you like to take the kids to the river of death and discovery museum? <laughs> How about giving some money to the river of death yeah. and discovery? Like, no wonder they were having trouble. <laughs> so, um, Al was basically Al. You know, had there was like a little group of them that were trying to get it going, and um, you know, as it got further along someone had the the bright idea of like, hey, why don't we ask uh, Phil if he would essentially lend his name to it? And it's a little weird, right? Because usually like the Tyrell, you know, that person has passed and Phil's still, he's still kicking. So, and it's also like, you know, Phil's a very humble person. Yeah. And so you have your name plastered on the side of the road. You know, it's a little weird, right? But But he was like, you know what? I might be a little uncomfortable with being like in the spotlight so much, but if it'll help you raise funds, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. So that's how the name came about. 
and it worked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was there at the opening of the museum, and and I was I was trying to get an interview. I couldn't I couldn't get to him. He was thronged, you know. <laughs> so, and yeah, so that was kind of sweet. Yeah, yeah, he is definitely one of our favorite paleontologists. Just he's so genuine and nice, and I think everybody was just like, he deserves to have a museum named after him for sure. Mm-hmm. Especially, totally. I didn't even know this story about how he was involved with that area specifically and sort of saving some of the paleontology. Yeah, so it makes it even more sense. Yeah. Yeah. There's a segment in Follow the Bones towards the end that's all illustrated, which was gorgeous. I really enjoyed that part. Did you two do that or how did you yeah, come up with this segment? I, um, when I worked at the CBC, we would often do recreations in uh, documentaries. So I, I would essentially work with illustrators. And so my friend who, who was, you know, a great illustrator, he couldn't do it at the time, but he, he, uh, he said, hey, how about this guy, Kagan McLeod? And Kagan was like, I was like, hey, Kagan, I really like your style. Are you interested in this job? And he was like, I do not draw dinosaurs. <laughs> and I said, eh, you know, we we can, you know, we can wing it. And, you know, I was trying to make him feel good. In truth, we actually went back and forth with Darren several times on the anatomy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Darren would say, tweak this, change this. You know, um, one of the, I think, issues we had is they're a little shrink-wrapped, and that's changed in the last few years. This The dinos are getting chubbier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even with the T-Rex, like when we first, when Kagan first did the illustration, it didn't have lips. And I was like, I think we might need to throw some lips on from there. <laughs> And he was like, it looks silly. And I was like, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to go with that. And yeah, like, I think it was a fun little segment of illustrating one of the possible ways that the bone bed could have formed. Yeah. I think you did a good job. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. And then Terry did the animation. So Keegan um, did all the illustrations and then Terry animated. Them. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, too, for T-Rex, you'll never make everybody happy. Exactly. (laughs) It's literally impossible because there's some people that are fervently, like, it definitely had lips, it had feathers, et cetera. And people are like, no, it definitely didn't have. And then, like, no matter which way you do it, one of the groups is going to be upset with you. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think, you know, comes back to what Phil was saying, you know, this debate, it's not, it's not personal. It's, it's part of the joy of of science. And it's also part of kind of the joy of living, you know, like you get to have these great conversations with people. You might not agree with what they're saying, but you know, that's the fun in life, you know, to sort of say, what do you think? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it did. And maybe it didn't. And there's evidence for this. And so, yeah, I think, you know, if, if one thing we wanted to capture was kind of the joy of, 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 of the, of the discovery, but also like just, just the way, you know, like this is this group, Eva, Phil, Darren, and Al, you know, like they shared this sort of passion and kind of luck brought them together. And, you know, they ended up making something that will be remembered and other people can learn from and then also get excited about and have their own careers, like kids growing up and stuff like that. And even Phil said, look, I, I don't necessarily want these kids to be paleontologists. I want them to be passionate about science. And that's what kind of really it comes down to. And that's why he's so generous with his time. I think he's he sees science communication as part of his job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And I remember talking to him too about like I'm a big fan of murder mysteries. And I was when we were when he was talking about the the story in Grand Prairie that, and I was like, it's kind of like a murder mystery a bit because you're trying to figure out like what happened to them and mm-hmm. why did they all die in this one particular thing. And yeah, and he he was like, you're exactly right. It's there is this kind of forensic element that you're trying to piece together the story of kind of what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought I thought that was that was a nice link for me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Like an ultimate cold case. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh, that's so good. That's a good name for a film, actually. The <laughs> ultimate cold case, and then the dinosaur could come in. <laughs> so now that you have the title, are you going to make another dinosaur documentary? Oh, we we do have. It's remarkable how much extra footage you end up with, Darren had details about Ceratops that we just, it, I mean, there's a lot there. So, you know, I was hoping to maybe have a little section on the website that'll have extras. And we left our poor friend, Martin, who designed the museum. We actually haven't told him yet that he's not in. Um, so no. that, so, I mean, he, he's, nah, he's, he was, he said we could cut it from the I mean, beginning. I mean, he was kind of like, uh, I think he, yeah, he you know, sh- it's hard to be on camera. Yeah, he yeah. was sheepish about being on camera. He was like, well, I, I lost 10 pounds since that shoot. You know, do you want to come back? And we're like, um. <laughs> he did not he say did. that. He said it to me. <laughs> yeah. He was- uh, Martin, he's so <laughs> lovely. But um, I, I kind of got the bug to be in the field. And, uh, you know, Tara did not get the bug. But uh, yeah, I, I'd I'd love to go back to uh, to the field. It was just such a fun experience well we also got to meet han so yeah there's definitely the potential of some other stories like there we found a lot of other stories that would be are totally fascinating so yeah they're not sure yeah there are so many stories (laughs) yeah crazy (laughs) and dinosaurs yeah awesome are there any other projects that you'd like to share that you're working on or you want people to know about i don't know if the era of a feature documentary may have passed um, and I think, you know, podcasts are such a vibrant medium. There's something magical about podcasts when, you know, you can, I don't know, do the dishes. You can, it doesn't demand maybe 100% of your time. And so I think if I was to do, a, you know, if we were to do another story about dinosaurs, we would keep them shorter, maybe, you know. Mm. Now, that being said, I tried so hard to get this under 40 minutes. and but <laughs> But then it's like, well... Darren spoke about the baby dino frill. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. So what do you cut out? So, you know, it's always a struggle to keep a, keep, as you know, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to keep a, a story lean. So, but yeah, I would, I would love, if anybody wants to invite me on a dig post Corona, yeah, we will, uh, we will be there. You know, I'd nice. say. You might get an invite. You might, yeah. Well, where, where's the best place for our listeners to find out more about you and your work if they're going online? Tara's work is at terracooper.com. The film itself is at followthebones.com. And there's a few extras there. There's some photos that uh, we took. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll load up a few more. There's a little preliminary sketch that we sent to Darren. And he was like, did you base this on that little toy? And I was like, um, maybe. And he's like, that toy is terrible. Um, so, so yeah. So, um, there's a few of the swings and a miss, um, on the website. So yeah, I'd say check out followthebones.com. 
Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. That It's such a great film and we're definitely going to do a watch party mm -hmm. with our listeners one of these days because we want to appreciate it with more dinosaur enthusiasts because mm -hmm. I think more people need to see it. And yeah, just thank you so much for joining us. And if you ever make anything else or want to talk about dinosaurs again, please come back. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate it. We're fans of the show. And like I said, you two have very soothing voices. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank it's, you. It's done yeah, right. thanks so much. It's been really fun. <laughs> thanks again, Tara and Terry. We had a really great time chatting with you and learning more about the documentary, the stories behind it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Pantadraca, which I am not pronouncing correctly because I cannot roll my R's. Anyway, it's a request from DC Cassandra via our Patreon and Discord. And thank you to Wiser, another patron on Discord, for the Welsh pronunciation guide, because this dinosaur was found in Wales. I think another way to say this name could be Pantadraco, because there are a lot of dinosaur names that end in Draco. And based on other guides, I've seen it pronounced that way. Depends how Welsh you want to make it. Yes. So Pantadraco was a basal sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now Wales in the Vale of Glamorgan. And descriptions of it are based on multiple individuals. The holotype skull was pretty crushed and disarticulated. Pantadraco was gracile. It had a long neck a long tail that was broad at the hip, and the tail tapered at the end. And it's estimated to be between 9 and 10 feet, or about 3 meters long, as an adult, and estimated to weigh about 110 pounds or 50 kilograms. There are other estimates, though, that it was 4.9 feet, or 1.5 meters long. The reason for this smaller estimate is that there's a little bit of debate whether or not this individual that's been found was a juvenile or an island dwarf, and that's partly based on a study of the fauna and finding that the habitat may not have been able to support much larger herbivores. Oh, interesting. However, Peter Galton and Kenneth Kermack said that the specimen had signs of being a juvenile, like the skull bones were not fully fused, it had this slender form, the head was too large for its neck, it had a short high snout and a low tooth count. Sounds a lot like a baby. Yeah, but the nasal bones are fused, and that's unusual for juveniles. So maybe that's a distinct characteristic of Pantadrago. Yeah, we know there's a lot of developmental plasticity in dinosaurs, too, where some of them fuse different parts at different phases, sometimes even within the same dinosaur. Mm -hmm. 
The skeletal reconstructions of Pantadraco can show it either being more bipedal or more quadrupedal, and that's depending on whether the back of part of the body is enlarged or not to match the size of the front of the body. So Kenneth Kermack showed it being more bipedal in 1984, and then Adam Yates had it as more quadrupedal in 2003. So we don't have a front and back of the same individual, so we just have to kind of guess? Yeah, only a partial skeleton's been found. Hmm. The forelimbs of Pantadraco were shorter than the hind limbs, and it could grasp with its forelimbs. Pantadraco also had a pointed head and a large thumb claw, which may have been for defense or to gather food. So it's a really early sauropodomorph then. Oh, you did say Triassic. That makes sense that its hands could still grasp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was probably omnivorous. It had a strong jaw and triangular teeth. So the type and only species is Pantadraco codicus. There was a partial, probably juvenile skeleton found. And the specimen was found in 1952 by Kenneth Kermack and Pamela Robinson in an underground limestone cave fissure. Oh, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Maybe a little dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Adam Yates originally named it Thecodontosaurus codicus in 2003, and that's based on specimen BMNHP24, which included the skull, partial jawbone, vertebrae, incomplete right pelvic bone, and partial forelimbs. And Thecodontosaurus was an existing genus. That was another one where they assigned this new find to a new species, but in an existing genus. Mm-hmm. And then Peter Galton, Adam Yates, and Kenneth Kermack named it, or renamed it, to the new genus Pantadraco in 2007. So the genus name is after the Pantophenon quarry, where it was found. And Pantophenon is a small village, and the quarry is at the base of a mountain between two rivers. And the Quarry name means dry valley. And if you hear Pantophenon, you will have no idea how to spell it because it's Welsh. It's crazy well, hard to spell. Unless you know Welsh. Yes. There are two Ys and a double F and a double N. Those are your clues. <laughs> well, there's four Ns total. <laughs> yes. It's anyway. quite a word. Yes. So the full genus name, Pantadrago, means dry valley dragon. Yeah, it's a pretty cool meaning. Mm-hmm. And the species name, Codicus, means fallen and refers to the assumption that the holotype fell into this fissure, the quarry, and then died there. Interesting assumption. There were a lot of flash thunderstorms in the area, which often drowned smaller animals and washed them into the limestone cracks. So they think that's what happened with this Pantadraco, which got swept away. And another reason they think it's a juvenile, because the adults would have been too big to go into the cracks. Interesting. I've never heard of that way to get fossilized before. It's a long list of ways to get fossilized. Yeah. In the 2007 paper about it, they wrote in the etymology, it was a, quote, fabulous lizard-like animal, (laughs) which I really enjoyed. (laughs) Apparently, Adam Yates got flack for the name Pantadraco because, based on the way it is written. Yeah, it's spelled P-A-N-T-Y Draco, Mm -hmm. so it looks like Panty Draco. Yes. He had wanted to call it Cambrambulus, Welsh Wanderer, and I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation. It's impossible to say three times fast. Cambrambulus, Cambrambulus, (laughs) nope. Impossible for you, at least. I don't know about other people. (laughs) Cambram. It's tricky. But anyway, the co-author Peter Galton had already suggested Pantadraco, so they went with that. It's one of the most basal sauropodomorphs known from Europe, along with Thecodontosaurus antiquus. 
And Thigodontosaurus was the fourth dinosaur named and the first sauropod named. Ah, you should really like that one. Yeah. Is it a true sauropod or is it a sauropodomorph? Yeah, it's a sauropodomorph. We'll take it. It was described in 1836 and 1840. In 2020, Antonio Bellel, Emily Rayfield, and Michael Benton wrote that Pantadraco may not be a valid taxon and that it might be a juvenile Thecodontosaurus antiquus instead. They compared Thecodontosaurus material found at a site in Titherton, England, and they found anatomical similarities like the teeth with deep straight roots and other similarities in the skull. And they also found characteristics that made Pantadraco distinct didn't apply, like the medial tuberosity of the humerus, so this mm-hmm. rounded prominence where the muscle attaches. They said this had been worn away on most Thecodontosaurus and Pantadraco specimens, including their specimen from England. They also found that phylogenetically, Thecodontosaurus and Pantadraco were consistently considered to be sister taxon, or Pantadraco was found to be in a clad that included Thecodontosaurus and more derived sauropodomorphs. So they said this could mean that Pantadraco and Thecodontosaurus were actually in the same taxon, or the only reason that Pantadraco could be considered more basal was because some of the characters that were assigned to it were because it was a juvenile. Mm. More than 800 animals have been found in the same rocks as Pantadraco, and most of them were small reptiles. Actually, only 2% were from Pantadraco. It's the exact opposite of a bone bed. Yeah. Well, <laughs> depends how you define a bone bed. If it's a dinosaur bone bed, then yeah. True, yeah. <laughs> so Pantadraco is probably one of the biggest animals in the area, along with the crocodilomorph Terrestrosuchus. That's a fun name. Haven't heard that one. Yeah. I guess it's a terrestrial... Crocodilomorph? Probably. So Pantadraco lived on small islands that had limestone caves and was surrounded by a tropical sea within a wetland. There were potentially frequent forest fires. You can see Pantadraco fossils at the Natural History Museum in Tring, Hertfordshire in the UK, which is unfortunately currently closed due to COVID. And our fun fact of the day is some of the fun I had with Google Translate giving enjoyable transliterations of dinosaurs in Chinese. Hmm. So one of the dinosaurs was translated as mouth-mouthed dragons. Oh. (laughs) But that's because it missed the character that means duck. (laughs) So it was supposed to be duck-mouthed dragon. All right. Could you guess what a duck-mouthed dragon would be? Oh, like duck-billed. Yeah, exactly. Hadrosaur. Okay. Yep. There's also horned dragons. That one's pretty obvious. Ceratopsians. Yep. The next one was my all-time favorite, egg-thirsting dragons. Is that over after it's... Yeah. (laughs) More accurately, actually, I think is egg-stealing dragon because the word in Chinese that they Google translated as thirsting more typically means stealing. So I don't know why. Maybe because it's an egg. So they figured mm. you would thirst for an egg, not want to steal an egg. But <laughs> yeah, egg-thirsting dragons. It translated tyrannosaurs properly, which I thought was pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. But the Chinese name for tyrannosaurs is baolonglei. And bao means either sudden and violent or cruel, savage, fierce, or short-tempered which I think are all really fun ways to describe a tyrannosaur. Mm-hmm. Like a sudden and violent dragon is yeah. one way to translate that. I think that's pretty fun. That's how we depict them in Land Before Time and other movies. Exactly. 
And that one seemed to be the only one that was very different than the English translation. Usually it seems like they either went with a, a literal translation like egg thief, or they went with a similar description like duck build and then translated that. Mm-hmm. No kings here. No. <laughs> or tyrants. <laughs> well, tyrants can be sometimes cruel and... Yeah, short-tempered, I yeah. suppose. What do you think the uh, lizard foot dragon was? Well, I think we know based on how you're looking at me, sauropod. Yes. <laughs> and that that's another one of those sort of literal translations. Soro is lizard, pod is foot. So they went with lizard foot and there you go. But the best one definitely is what is literally translated as the first place or alpha dragon. You know what that one's going to be? Is it a specific species? These are all groups. So oh. they have lay at the end, and that means like the category of the animal. Okay. So we've done hadrosaur, we've done ceratopsians, oviraptor, tyrannosaur, tyrannosaur, sauropod. What are we missing? <laughs> I think you know. The ankylosaur, obviously. Oh, of course. Oh. I just love that it's the first place or the alpha dragon. <laughs> Because obviously ankylosaurs <laughs> are the best. But <laughs> the character that they use for the beginning of ankylosaur can also refer to a shell or carapace, like a turtle shell or armor. But I'd like to think that they're not translating it as armored dragon, but instead translating it as the alpha dragon or the best dragon. Hmm. Either way, it's better than lizard foot dragon. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> They don't even have lizard feet. It's not a good name. But it's a great animal, a group of animals. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, because they all have lay at the end, which I, I didn't see elsewhere. I was trying to see if this meant like sauropodomorph or if it meant like sauropods or what group exactly it was. But they used the same character at the end of all of these different dinosaur names. And I... I couldn't find which level of classification it was. I, my best guess is that it's like when we use it a little bit informally mm -hmm. and we just say sauropods mm -hmm. or tyrannosaurs. You know, exactly. And you can't tell if we're talking about tyrannosaurinae or tyrannosauridae or tyrannosauroidea or whatever. I think that's what they're going for. The more you know. Yep. Just keep in mind first place dragon. Eh. Synchylosaurus. There's other things worth knowing. <laughs> <laughs> Other things were it's a good defense. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Sit down, boom.